lovely friends and unlovely foes. Um, you're tuned into Drawn and Quartered, the podcast where I nerd the hell out about animated media of all kinds. Deep diving into a range of specific topics. We're talking shows, movies, specific creators, um, characters, uh, fan theories, the works, anything goes. Um... Today we're going to be going into a bit of a career retrospective of the anime director Mamru Hosoda because he has a new film that was released in Japan in July called Bell. I'm not sure when it's going to be released via G-Kids worldwide though. These things generally take a few months even though last year's highest grossing release was an anime film. So it feels like they should speed these things up. The movie I'm talking about is the Demon Slayer Mugen Train movie, by the way. Um, Now, Hosoda is often called the next Miyazaki, along with the likes of Makoto Shinkai, who directed Your Name. But it's a catastrophically stupid thing to call any anime director, really. It's just such an inane comparison. But it does show you the high regard with which he's regarded. <laughs> Sorry, th- that laugh went right into the mic. Um, so to hype us up for the imminent bell release, I want to take you through his career and discuss the kind of filmmaker he is. And for once, I'm going to try to be relatively spoiler-free. I mean, there's going to be some minor spoilers, but they'll be pretty out of context and nothing big enough to take away from your experience watching it much. The goal here is basically to do the exact opposite, so hopefully I accomplish that. Um, Yeah, let's get right into it. So, he was inspired to get into animation because of the Lupin the Third movie, Castle of Cagliostro which is funny since it was actually Miyazaki's debut feature-length film. He studied oil painting at the Kanazawa College of Art to this end and applied to Studio Ghibli with a short film he'd made in his spare time, but he was rejected. Although he did receive a letter of praise from Miyazaki, which is the greatest accomplishment I would have in my life if that was something I got, so that's something. He eventually did get work at Toy Animation, who are also absolute titans of the game. Like, if if Ghibli was the artistic heartbeat of animation studios back then in Japan, then Toy Animation was the commercial heartbeat. Which isn't to say that Toy Animation had no artistry to it, because that would also imply that Ghibli had very little commercial success, both of which very, very wrong things. But they made the stuff that sells hella um, toys. Get it? <laughs> Sorry. But yeah, it's things like Digimon, Yu-Gi-Oh!, One Piece, Dragon Ball Z, etc. Basically, there's a 70% chance your first anime series was a toy animation one, and that other 30% is mostly Pokemon. Uh, 
He started out as a key animator on the likes of Dragon Ball Z, Sailor Moon, Sailor Stars, Yu Yu Hakusho, and Slam Dunk. And he wrote an episode of and storyboarded several episodes of Revolutionary Girl Yutena before being given the opportunity to be the director of a short film. And the short film was Digimon Adventures. And it was effectively the Digimon Adventure series pilot. And this was in 1999, which was a massive turning point in his career, obviously being his first director thing. The he, After this, he directed an episode of the Digimon Adventure series and then a second Digimon short film set after the end of the first series in 2000 called Digimon Our Wargame. He's also credited as the co-director for Digimon the movie that came out later that year. Now, as dear to my heart as it is, being very probably the first anime film that my young four, five-year-old little brain fell in love with. If you watched the Digimon the movie movie, you probably noticed it felt like a kind of disjointed bunch of stories because it very literally was that. The Digimon movie is three short forms standing on each other's shoulders in a trench coat doing the thing from Little Rascals. The context here is that the Pokemon movie was super successful and made the series more popular than it was before and the American distributors wanted to capitalize on the success by repeating the model but they were too cheap to fund an entire original movie because Digimon wasn't quite as popular as Pokemon. So what they did was splice three existing short films together the first two of which were Hosoda's Adventures and Our War Game short films. And then they cut out some stuff specific to Japanese culture and they Americanized it a bit more. Which wasn't always bad, to be honest. They threw in some killer, good old-fashioned, fun American rock and roll. You know, some bare-naked ladies. And there was this running gag subplot in Our War Games that was honestly a lot funnier in the Americanized version. Um, and they also prefaced it with this really, really surreal Angela Anaconda short, and then they just called it a day. And so they gave Hosoda his feature-length debut through a bit of a technicality, really. But, you know, you'll take the win. Now, the Digimon adventure short was about a young... Tai and Kari, who couldn't have been much older than 6 and 2, respectively, maybe like, what, 7, 3, and they experienced a breach of the Digimon world into ours, with a Digi-egg, Digi-materializing, and Digi-hatching, and going through Digivolutions, as they attempted to take care of their new pet-slash-friend, which is already hard at first, but it eventually culminates into a seriously epic kaiju battle between a Greymon and an evil giant parrot Digimon that could very easily be the source of my anithophobia in retrospect. Like, that, that bird haunts my dreams. 
Now you can see the beginning of what would become Hosoda's hallmark style in the short or this part of the movie depending on which you saw. You see his flat colored character designs with minimal use of shadow except for pivotal moments which makes them pop a lot more like the giant bird flying overhead and the shadow going over them making the moment feel really menacing and he puts it up against very detailed backgrounds which creates this very interesting contrast he also has a real eye for interesting emotive sometimes almost ridiculous facial expressions and a very realistic eye for and focus on sibling dynamics some shots he uses a lot like the um, straighter head close-up of a character's face and it's even used here in the way it continued to later focusing a lot less on the thing that's happening but more on a character's changing reaction to it from the perspective of the thing that's happening for instance here there's a digi egg coming out of the computer as a shocked Kari looks on and Elsewhere, one character is listening to another character's exposition and you're focused on the character listening. And he also has a key, keen eye for um, camera movements and he uses it really smartly but sparingly here. As seen in the kaiju fight with like some nice overhead swivel panning shots showing the dire scope of the fight and the awe of our cute chubby little protagonists. The Our War Game short, which is the middle section of the Digimon movie, is where he really starts coming into his own though. He set, it's set in the summer holidays after the Digimon adventure series ended and it's about a computer virus slash Digimon hybrid who causes all sorts of problems on the internet, messing up servers by eating all the data on them and causing havoc to important computer systems all over Japan. Everything from digital microwaves to supermarket food price databases, while Izzy, Matt, TK and Ty try to track and fight the Digimon with their own Digimon in the internet which is visualized as a series of massive domes of pure white wallpaper and random scaffolding and cogs all around this wallpaper. As it goes into more dangerous, dangerous servers, eventually breaking into the freaking Pentagon and launching missiles that the Digidestined have to kill the virus Digimon in order to stop. Now, if you follow Hosoda's work, there are probably several alarm bells going off in your head at the synopsis, and we will get to that later, I promise. Now, besides the synopsis, though, more things here that would become integral to, integral to Hosoda's filmmaking style appear. Now, there's the visualization of abstract spaces with more, with, you know, the enormous pure white environment that I just spoke about offset with vivid pops of color from the characters or the ornamental structures. You see it in like half of his movies in some form or other, usually as a way to visualize digital space or uh, time as a spatial dimension. 
A theme that becomes very prominent in his work first comes through here. The importance of human connection and how it can save us. Also, the potential of technology for both good, like aiding these connections, and bad, like causing alienation or literal terrorism, is also explored here and something that looks like might have a part to play in the new film even. I just saw the trailer that it looks like there's like techie themes to it. It also has a lot of the previous parts, um, Hosodisms, 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 whatever, with, with the lack of shadows on characters except for pivotal moments, like that big final fight that I can't really say too much about because spoilers and more detailed backgrounds. There's also more use of the camera with real emotional intent, as opposed to just like being thrown around all willy-nilly at every moment just to make the shots look cooler, and usually keeping the framing of the shot remarkably still. Like There's this lateral tracking shot, which is a shot of camera movement from left to right or the other way around, not really from a, any character's point of view, very objective. And there's one, uh, there's one of those of War Greymon dodging a seemingly endless shower of blasts, adding to the moment's anxiety, or a slow zoom as Diablomon reveals a timer for the missiles, making him seem all the more menacing. Rewatching it though, I was kind of struck by just how much technology has changed and how much of a time capsule this short or movie is because of its reliance on like dial-up connections and desktop computers. One of the biggest plot points in our war game hinges on the telephone lines being tied up and that com messing with their connection, which is not really a worry you're gonna have today. The third part, with the second generation of the Digimons, has zero Hosoda involvement, so I'm not going to go very deep into it, but despite the fact that you can very vividly see how the art style and shot composition and story feels different compared to parts of the Digimon movie that were directed by Hosoda, it's pretty good for what it is. Like, it's, it's a fine romp, it's not spectacular but it's really it's worth checking out now, finding out years and years later that one of my first anime loves is a director that I'd come to admire all over again was pretty fun though like who knew he was captivating me my whole life like I'm pretty sure the VHS of the Digimon movie still at my great grandmother's house somewhere She, I don't even know if she still has a VHS player though Hosoda would continue to direct Digimon episodes into 2001 when he was given the opportunity of a lifetime. Now, Hayao Miyazaki was a year into his first retirement after Spirited Away's massive success and was expected to more or less hand over the keys to the kingdom. And even though Hosoda only had two short films, technically, and a few TV episodes as a director. He and he mostly worked as a key animator at this point. 
His work was so impressive that he was chosen to direct Howl's Moving Castle. Now, you might be thinking, hold on, did Miyazaki not direct that? And you'd be right. Um, you see, Studio Ghibli executives, they wanted Hosoda to direct Howl's in Miyazaki's style, which Hosoda struggled to do and eventually refused to because he wanted to create a work with his own signature stamp on it. And this eventually turned into irreconcilable differences and Hosoda quit the project eventually. Now I'm speculating here, but based off of Hosoda's repertoire, I would say that um, the, the Hosoda version, version of this house would have been a lot more about the found family dynamic of the castle as opposed to the themes of war and its cost which is a much more Miyazaki theme. And he returned to Toy after this and directed one of the most surreal commercials I've ever seen called Super Flat Monogram. You can check it out on YouTube. It's like a Louis Vuitton commercial, I think. And it also uses the pure white background with vivid pops of color and flat character designs with expressive movements and after this he directed a One Piece episode in probably the best episode of the best filler arc of One Piece that I've seen that G8 arc episode where things really start falling apart okay granted I'm nearly 400 episodes behind now so maybe the G8 arc isn't one of the best anymore but that's still like almost 600 episodes because One Piece has been going for billions of years. And he also directed a really standout One Piece film called Baron Omatsuri and the Secret Island. The film finds the pirates going into an island that advertised itself as an island of leisure and festivities only to find the pirate crew inhabitants setting an, um, a set of challenges for the straw hats to beat to earn their leisure, which turns out to actually be a plot to drive the crew apart. It stands out starkly amongst One Piece films and is very clearly one of its most divisive amongst the fans because of this. The characters aren't as scaled up and refined as in the other films following Hosoda's more sketch-like, flat-colored character design aesthetic and leaning heavily into Hosoda's love for exaggerated movement and facial expression, pushing it into very frenetic, Tex Avery, Looney Tunesy territory, which isn't so odd for the series itself, but the movies do tend to scale it back a lot. And Hosoda just goes the exact opposite direction, really. And as with other Hosoda works, the backgrounds are incredibly gorgeous and detailed, and at this point in his career, the most detailed he's ever done. Really making the characters' silly, wild movements in flat color pop a lot more. The, the, it also challenges One Piece's traditional themes of finding family and friends, making their bond feel a lot more earned, but also pushing it to its limit in a way I don't think I've seen in any One Piece arc besides when Luffy and Usopp went at it. 
the conflict between the crew is mostly pretty petty but boils into genuine division incredibly organically and that showcases also does great understanding of family dynamics and conflict very early on in his career because you know often siblings and or cousins will hate being around each other through a build-up of tiny problems they just sort of pile on and pile on and pile on until, until you just hate the sound of their breathing and he showcases that pile on very smoothly the film's second half is especially unusual for One Piece but also for Hosoda with it playing very much like a surrealist horror which is totally my jam and getting really really dark and ending in one of the most gorgeous battles I've ever seen bathed in dark red and black lighting that pushes Luffy to his limit in a way that's rarely seen in this long, 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 long anime series. The themes of the importance of human connection come through again here via the villain of the film in a truly tragic way and fantastic side characters like the toothbrush must the toothbrush must the toothbrush mustache pirate I should have just said the Hitler mustache pirate that 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 is what he is he has a Hitler mustache it's it's weird I'm gonna move on also the father who's stranded on the island with his children who actually turns out to be the movie's real hero kind of he continued to improve his use of camera movements with emotional weight and his shot composition especially in still camera shots only became more and more stunning and clever one piece fans tend to either hate this movie like straight up hate it or think it's easily the best one and my favorite movie when i was six was wes craven's new nightmare so you can probably guess which camp i'm in A little before this film, he also directed two episodes of Ojamaju Doremi Dokan, one of which seems a pretty clear, like pretty clearly inspired by his time at Studio Ghibli, but it didn't really point fingers, nor was it resentful at all. It was this gorgeously contemplative, spectacularly directed episode. That was more a meditation on admiring someone with seemingly infinite wisdom, wanting to be like them but realizing that you need to find your own path there. With a focus on imposter syndrome, I'm sure it would have been difficult to avoid working with your idol at such a early stage in your career. There's regret there, but more regret that he didn't get to learn more versus regret about having to follow someone else's way. There's the scene with the older witch who no longer practices magic, <laughs> kinda like how Miyazaki was no longer an animator as he was retired at the time, and she's talking about the vibrancy of glass refracting in the light and glass seeming cold and inanimate, but if you look closely, it moves and vibrates ever so slightly. But you can only see it when you've been a witch and blowing glass for an impossibly long time. And it's hard for me not to see Miyazaki talking about still images, storyboards springing to life in the mind of the long-lived animator. 
If anything, the episode felt more like a love letter to Miyazaki and his time at Studio Ghibli. The episode is episode 40 of Dokkan, if you're inclined to go look for it. This episode might have had him at the height of his power in terms of technique, at least in the first half of his career. A lot of the shot composition with faraway shots that feel objective and keeps you at arm's length then pulling you in with sudden face-centered close-ups when he wants you to attach yourself to a character's perspective. He uses a lot of them really cleverly. And he also uses um, repeated similar shots as a way to build up to a change that strongly represents a character's change frame of mind. Also the way he builds tension with camera movements, shadows and spaces in sound is just exquisite here. The anime industry took note of how much um, Baron Omatsuri and The Secret Island stood out, but even more so, it was the incredible episode of Ojomaju Doremi Dokan that industry elites um, paid attention to. And so Madhouse snapped him up to direct an original work for them. And it's kind of poetic to me that his hardships at Ghibli would be what inspired him to create a story that would give him the space to be the best glass-blowing witch that he can be. Now, at this point in 2005, Madhouse were building a reputation as an exciting, burgeoning animation studio filled with fresh ideas and innovation, with Satoshi Kon being a large part of this, and Mamoru Hosoda would contribute greatly with the works of 2009's Summer Wars and 2006's The Girl Who Leapt Through Time which came out only months before Satoshi Kon's final film and magnum opus, um, Paprika. In a sort of a torch-passy moment, really. The basic premise of The Girl That Lived Through Time is that a girl gains the power of time travel and uses it to relive the same day multiple times, you know, voluntary Groundhog Day vibes. It's not exactly any kind of theft of Groundhog Day, though, but actually a loose sequel to a very well-beloved Japanese novel of the same name that first came out in 1967 and has since been adapted more than twice as much as The Great Gatsby. This anime film having our protagonist Makoto being the niece of the novel's protagonist, explaining why Makoto's aunt seems so blasé about all the time travel stuff. To detail the premise a little more, the film follows high school girl Makoto Kono as she experiences a truly terrible day, including causing a fire in home ec class and having an entire large boy hurled at her with centrifugal force. Um, later, after school, in a classroom, she slips and falls onto the all-powerful time walnut which apparently has psychedelic qualities because she promptly trips all the balls. Not long after, on her way home, the brakes on her bike fail on a downhill and she's thrown into the direct path of a train, only to open her eyes and see that she's travelled back in time a few, s a few minutes. 
she works in the technique and promptly starts using time travel for all of the nonsense. You know, truly silly teen stuff like 8 trillion hours of karaoke and retaking a test that she messed up because she was late. Or at least that's what she thinks because she does start to meddle a little bit more and more with people's agency and, well, things start falling apart from there. I won't go too deep into how it does because one, spoilers and... I did have a second reason but honestly I forgot and like anyway time waits for no one so let's move on. Now up until this point he had been refining his stylistic composition and camera techniques with every release but with this film he took a huge um, leap, leap forward, get it? Like because she leaps through time, you get it. Um, yeah, she, he took a leap forward with his use of narrative and theme. While the plot does hinge on time travel, it's not really about time travel the way something like Looper is, for example, but it's used as a way to explore themes like consequences and regret and the way time can distance us from the people we care about. This is something that would be very common in his later work, using supernatural or fantastical elements to explore more down-to-earth, simple human topics, to show us that normal human life is dramatic and fantastical. He becomes a director that's all about finding the beauty in the mundane. Uh, this is his first time working on original characters, but you could not really tell because the characterizations are so realistic. Makoto is flighty, awkward and a little lazy, but also friendly and resourceful, possibly because of her laziness, the resourceful. Generally I find lazy people are also super resourceful. Those two things make sense together. And her personality shapes the plot more than the plot shapes her actions. And it makes the story's progression feel so much more organic and making the characters all feel incredibly in place. This goes for the other prominent characters too. They each have very distinct real feeling personalities. And their actions never seem out of place with their traits. Kosuke Tsuda's a smart, serious person, but not in a disciplinarian or brooding kind of way. More the kind of person very concerned with the well-being of people around him, but with a slight arrogance to him. You see it when he can't comprehend how Makoto gets better marks than him in a test, and it makes him seem like he thinks he knows what's best for everyone. Which makes the part where he helps an injured girl onto Makoto's bike despite the injured girl's protests feel just right. Chiaki Mamiya is the scruffier, lazier, more laid-back type, but there always seems to be a slight distance or barrier between him and his interactions with everyone, like he's trying to be detached from people, which by the end of the film makes total sense. 
Well, so this camera work doesn't exactly improve here per se in terms of raw technique. To be honest, that Ojamaju episode is such a masterclass that it's just so hard to do. But it's scaled up very dramatically and it makes the film feel so much larger than life. I think about the slow tracking shot as she rides with Chiaki past the river as the pinks and yellows of the sky and the setting sun give it the sort of magical romantic feel or the faster lateral tracking shot where she's running and running desperately trying to find Kosuke losing steam as she falls out of view of the moving camera and pushing her way back in through sheer force of will. These moments feel massive with a sort of wide-eyed stargazy quality, whereas that Ojamaju episode felt incredibly introspective and intimate and almost claustrophobic. I, men I mentioned those shots because this film is the beginning of him becoming to me, the best user of the lateral tracking shot in just about all of film in my... I said in my opinion already. All of his films have a couple of incredibly iconic, deeply impactful and gorgeous uses of it. Generally, it's a pretty weird shot. It's not from a character's perspective and it's kind of like cold and literal, but it's used as... Yeah, it's usually used as an establishing shot or a smooth, beautiful way to transition between scenes. But Usoda uses it in a way that expresses his character's desires, emotions and personality in a way that someone with an intimate understanding of how to convey personality through movement only could. And his love for exaggerated character movements served him well to this end, I think. The aesthetic of the film is beautiful and measured. The cinematography, a lot of the time, is vividly colorful, but mostly in a functional way, as opposed to trying to be particularly gorgeous, but the pivotal moments are almost always having this incredible, delicate beauty to it. And it's probably the way that Hosoda is most like Hayao Miyazaki. There's the visualization of time as a static spatial dimension, which sees the return of the white dome that Hosoda loves using so much with a black band of red numbers like an infinite alarm clock and cogs representing, you know, the cogs in a watch, which pop even more against the brightness of the foam generally. The scene where Makoto is trying to get a handle of her powers is also another example. Or when she falls onto the walnut and has a weird psychedelic experience that looks sort of like a moving oil painting. And also there's both scenes where Chiaki tries to confess different things to Makoto. There's also a repeated distanced objective still shot in the movie taken from that Ojamajo episode basically showing the protagonist and a friend talking by a fork in the road symbolizing the choices that she has and how only one path can be chosen. Initially it was only going to have a small limited release in Japan 
and it wasn't promoted very strongly at all but people were so captivated by it that it spread through word of mouth like a wildfire and people flocked to see it several showings had cinemas so packed that people were sitting on stairs and walkways just to catch it Madhouse expanded its release in response to this and submitted it to several film festivals and awards. It won a whopping six awards at the 2007 Tokyo Anime Awards, including Animation of the Year, Best Director, Best Original Work and Best Screenplay. It also got Animation of the Year at the Japan Academy Prize and the Sidgis Animation Festival. Which is a pretty big deal. It's like one of the most preeminent fantasy and horror festivals in the world. And thanks to its success, instead of being put onto one of Madhouse's great shows, he was asked to create another original work. And inspired by meeting the very large family of who would eventually become his wife, coming from an only child home with a single mother, he began to work on Summer Wars. The film follows a shy 11th grade maths whiz named Kenji Koiso who is roped into pretending to be the 12th grade Natsuki Shinoharu's boyfriend over the summer holidays during a family reunion to celebrate her grandmother's 90th birthday and interacting with her large family but is implicated in the large scale hacking by an evil fight loving AI of an MMORPG like all-purpose social media hub called Oz. That is sort of like if Google or Amazon consolidated all of its functionality under one roof and that roof was an Apex Legends arena. The AI called Love Machine steals more and more sensitive data and becomes more and more dangerous and powerful along the way, eventually hacking into military servers and launching a nuclear warhead Unless the protagonists and Natsuki's um, young cousin Kazuma, whose avatar is King Kazuma and renowned as the best fighter in Oz, can stop him before the timer runs out. Now, alarm bell should be ringing in your head now because the latter half of that synopsis is literally Digimon Our War Game. And well done for paying attention if you got that. You see, when Mamru Hosura uh, worked on Digimon Our Wargame, he said that he loved the concept a lot, but felt like it deserved to be explored on a much larger scale than a half-hour special, and that was the other part of the inspiration of this movie. Now, it might seem like he mashed two incongruous concepts into one movie at first glance. The fake boyfriend winning over and getting to know the huge family, and the fight against dangerous AI, but again here he integrates the dramatic and fantastical with the more, mundane isn't the right word here, more human struggles, linking them thematically and exploring the way technology brings people together and can alienate and cause them despair, much like being in a large family and the togetherness and loss that you can experience through that can. The film, I think, was the final piece to the jigsaw of Hosoda's identity as a director for me. 
His exploration of the intricacy of family dynamics would become a major theme in his subsequent films, Wolf Children focusing on a mother's struggle, giving her children the best, pa- the best path for them, The Boy and the Beast focusing on a father and son bond, Mirai focusing on a young child dealing with having a baby sister and feeling a loss of affection. The cast of this film is massive and yet just about all the family members are given time to shine and let their personalities come through clearly. And you see just how gifted Hosoda is at crafting unique and easily distinguishable characters here. Not all of them are endearing and just about every one of them are pretty flawed, but this makes them feel a lot more real and three-dimensional despite their limited screen time. The fights range range from petty disputes to deep resentment and unspoken awkwardness being exposed and despite the amount of conflicts, the tangled web is explored enough that the complex combination of anger, love, fear, bitterness and joy all comes through very flavorfully, especially with Natsuke, Sakai, the grandmother and Wabisuke, the adoptive uncle's relationships with each other. The World of Oz is another instance of the massive white space that Hosoda loves using, here scaled up like never before, to a sprawling extent and populated by incredibly vivid pops of colour, thanks to the really creative avatars running around all over the place, going about their business, starting fights, making exchanges, etc. You know, everything from anthropomorphic rabbits in cool jackets and goggles, to smiley faces with stick bodies, to full-on Aztec gods, and also some buildings and libraries and commerce centers with strange architecture, to put it mildly. This is easily my favorite use of this concept by Hosoda and has a strangely epic sweeping feel to it. The outside world is gorgeous here and the family reunion takes place in an old-school Japanese estate replete with samurai artifacts and heirlooms and surrounded by gorgeous green fields and hills in the distance. The home is so large that Kenji finds himself getting lost more than once. The background of the house and surroundings is incredibly vivid as well and very well shaded yet again against flatly drawn hyper-expressive characters and those expressions alone are often enough to help you understand each character's personalities with Kazuma's general disinterest and slight arrogance coming through in his sullen, slightly brooding face Osakai, the 90-year-old family matriarch being stern but warm often going from full-faced, chubby-cheeked grin to searing stare and back, like frequently. The character design and background contrast in depth is itself contrasted with the virtual world where that contrast is flipped. I used contrast a lot today. I'm sorry if you couldn't follow. What I mean is, in the quote-unquote real world in this um, anime, the characters very flatly colored very vivid backgrounds in the virtual world of oz 
the background is basically pure white pretty flat but the character designs very vivid very epic very spectacularly shaded like some of the designs are like final digivolution level stuff the fights in oz are even better than most digimon fights to be honest i can't really think of many better with incredibly fluid movement and killer choreography and camera cuts and movements that make everything feel so tense and energetic and this makes the stakes feel a lot more real but most of all it's the actual drawn art it's just spectacular in a word the shot composition in the real world is at this point Hosoda's most refined and delicate yet and he's become an expert at combining different elements of his very specific style to devastating effect. Wow, let me get my English there to very devastating effect is what I meant to say. I think of this one, and yes again, lateral tracking shot. After something tragic happens and sadness washes over the clan, they're bathed in shadows as the camera slowly pans throughout the house giving you time to see their reactions and the scale of the devastation and letting the moment sink in so much and beautifully. Or another tracking shot where Sakai, the grandmother, attacks an incredibly disrespectful family member with the Japanese equivalent of a glaive. I don't know the word for it, but it's the long stick with that big blade at the end. That thing. With the family watching just like in silent shock but the shot moving away from them as Wabisuke flails backwards trying to avoid getting sliced. The way you can see everyone's reactions clearly and then the camera seamlessly shifting focus to the panic of Wabisuke through just a consistent movement of the camera is some genius level composition. The film came on the heels of The Girl Who Led Through Time's unexpected commercial and critical success, making the hype for it pretty massive for the scale of the studio and garnering heaps of adoration on the award circuit, even earning an Annie nomination for Best Director of a Feature Length, only the second Japanese director nominated in the category besides Miyazaki himself. Osoda decided that he wanted to focus on Oteo works after his fulfilling experience on Summer Wars, but being that Madhouse generally had more of a focus on series than films, and possibly because of the studio split that happened around this time in 2011, where, where Mapper was created, he decided to strike out on his own and create his own studio with his longtime collaborator who co-wrote both Summer Wars and The Girl Who Lived Through Time, Yuichiro Saito. They used the main character of their first collaboration as their Totoro, using the silhouette of Makoto's iconic leap from The Girl Who Lived Through Time and forming Studio Chizu in 2011. And just a year later, they would release what is a lot of the time considered by fans to be Osoda's finest work, Wolf Children. Taking inspiration from his own life and memories of his single mother raising him, 
as well as hearing a co-worker say raising children is like having a wild animal in your house. Wolf Children follows a young woman named Hannah, which means flower, through 13 years of her life, from being a university student to falling in love with a man who can change into a wolf, or a wolf that can change into a man, depending on your perspective. He's super hot, by the way, so go team furries. Um, and it follows her from that to bearing his children who can do the same and her struggle navigating how to properly care for and giving the best for them. She struggles deciding what the best for them even looks like, realizing that maybe a city life where they have to constantly keep hidden and there are people constantly prying isn't the best for the development. You can see the mother totally at her wits in um, throughout the movie, unsure of how wolves should be raised and struggling to provide for them. And I think it's a brilliant way to convey how magical yet absolutely bizarre and terrifying and confusing raising children is. Because people pretend there's a methodology for children that more or less at least works and because it's something so many people go through it's often taken for granted but when you're actually thrown into the situation it's like being thrown to the uh, to the wolves i'm on fire today <laughs> uh, this is of course another instance of the use of the fantastical as a vehicle to explore the more simple human topics and like i've said before convey the magic and drama that we feel in the moment. Besides the obvious themes of parenthood, the film is largely about the importance of finding community and it does a really good job of connecting this to parenthood with a broader theme of, be of the joy and struggles of being a part of something larger than yourself. Parenthood also being something like that and community and nature all of these themes are there and it's all something bigger than oneself and each of the main characters deal with this communal theme in different ways although i won't go too deep into how because that would basically be telling you the whole film it does a really good job at hammering home the lesson that you can believe and consciously know something but until you actually experience it, you're practically ignorant, which is a lesson Hannah especially has to learn over and over again. With parenthood and reading all the parenting books, but spending a lot of the movie winning, winging it and just totally confused, and reading piles on piles about farming, but struggling until the community shows her some things. And there's also her moving to give her children a path, like a choice in their path. But when they actually do choose their path, she goes a little bit off the rails. It uses its visuals to tell the story really, really well. Like in terms of show, don't tell, this is easily Hosora's finest hour. With a lot of emphasis on dialogue, with a lot less emphasis on dialogue than his previous films, and this aspect of the movie is maybe the closest he gets to Miyazaki territory, like in one single aspect of one single movie. 
Like there's the scene which is largely yet another incredible use of lateral tracking shots with some other kinds interspersed like the zooming forward tracking shot from the perspective of Yuki when Ame and Yuki are running through the snowy forest and mountains as wolves just experiencing the thrill and joy of the run and the snow splashing all around them as the mother struggles to keep up behind them and at the end of the scene they howl into the sky showing just how truly freeing being in nature is to them after how restricting city life was to the side of them. Also the music in the scene is absolutely spectacular and just elevates the scene to pure pure joy. I love that scene so much it's genuinely one of my favorite scenes in anything ever. There's also this this cut from the new boy saying that he can smell a dog-like smell and cutting to um, Yuki just aggressively washing her hands and looking anxious showing the shame that she starts to develop about her wolf side. There's the other really iconic lateral tracking shot from this film that has zero cuts that's used in a montage effect to show the passage of time from first slash second grade to third slash fourth grade of Ami and Yuki's neighboring classrooms. The scene tells you a lot about their development and personalities without really saying anything at all. You can see Yuki sitting at the front of her class and putting her hands up as high as she can amongst the action and Ame is sitting at the back of his class, head perched on his hand, not paying attention as everyone ahead of him is enthusiastically waving their hands trying to get picked. And then you see Ame getting picked on and Yuki coming to his rescue and then Yuki becoming a popular person in her class reading in front of everyone while Ame starts ditching class entirely. There's, there's also this really beautiful use of distanced still camera shots that seem kind of coldly objective but its use in montaging Hana and the Wolfman's lives feels so intimate and almost voyeuristic. In these shots you see Hana studying, working, cooking, grocery shopping and generally seeming kind of stressed and lonely, not particularly happy. And you see the same for our Wolfman. But then you see them start to spend more and more time together and those shots of grocery shopping and cooking and studying together reappear and then they seem so much more joyful and more and more in love. It's a very clever use of this objective camera style instead of putting in the middle of the action because this distance makes it feel like you're seeing them when they don't think anyone is watching them. You're seeing them at their rawest with the least artifice without Hana always smiling like a personality usually is or the wolfman's practiced aloofness. It feels like you're getting to know the realist side of these characters and that makes the happiness that they have together just feel so much more genuine. The names of Hana and her children also become visual motifs like Hana being flower, Yuki meaning snow, and Ame meaning rain. 
Rain comes to symbolize a time of dramatic change in this film, with both the first and last major shifts in the plot coming with hard rain, and them adjusting to the new rundown old house also being shown with rain leaking through the cracks in the ceiling. Snow is seen to represent unrestrained joy, just like Yuki's personality generally, like that incredible scene mentioned earlier. Flowers are used as a sort of reminder to be resilient in the movie, showing up in times of doubt very often. Um, as Hana was named for the resilience of the cosmos flower that on the day she was born bloomed in her yard without anyone planting it or looking after it. So yeah, not only are the visuals arresting and absorbing, but they're so filled with meaning and nothing is done just because it looks cool. All of the beauty has drive and purpose. I also have to note how incredible the soundtrack is in general. I mentioned it with the snow scene, but there's so many great uses of music in this film and they fit the magical, majestic feel of it all too well. The film did well on the award circuit also, being nominated for 6 and winning 19 awards, including another Japanese Academy Award for Best Animation and a Best Picture at the Sitges Awards, and a whopping 6 Tokyo, Anima Tokyo Animation Festival Awards, including Best Director and Animation of the Year, and more. But Honestly, if there was any justice, it would have been up for an Oscar. I mean, Brave won that year. And that was just Scottish Brother Bear with a less iconic soundtrack. Although, to be fair, the nominations in general were really strong. Classics like Frank and Weenie, Paranorman, Record Ralph, Pirates, Band of Misfits, which is weirdly underrated, besides the Oscar nom. The movie did well enough to boost Hosoda's international reputation substantially though. Three years later in 2015, Hosoda's studio Chizu would release The Boy and the Beast. The film follows a nine-year-old named Ren whose mother had recently passed away and decides to run away when his mother's older relatives try to convince him to let them take him in as he wanted to be with his estranged father instead. Uh, after being on the streets for a while, and he meets a bear-like beast man named Kumatetsu who half-jokingly asks him to be his martial arts apprentice because he needs an apprentice in order to be eligible for a contest to be lord of the, I guess, furry con world? It's a place inhabited by other humanoid beasts of varying kinds, so it's literally Furicon, but the personas don't come off. Um, Ren follows him to this world and is renamed Kyuta, which means, well, Q means nine, because he's nine years old. <laughs> and he does become Kumatetsu's apprentice, living there learning to become stronger for se several years, after which complications start arising. Inspired in part by the birth of Hosoda's firstborn and how he felt like he was learning more by being a parent than perhaps he might have been teaching his child, this film is largely centered on the bond between father and son, 
exploring the found family relationship between Kumatetsu and Kyuta. Kumatetsu is a ruffian in personality and fighting style, being a generally callous and aggressive person, but very resourceful and strong will too. As a fighter, he's incredibly powerful, and but very unpolished and his movements are very wasteful. He is unable to overcome his main rival because of this, who is the stoic and poised lion bear man with the hair like Marvel's Thor named Eozin. He struggles to teach Kyoto anything because he learned everything he knows without a teacher but through experience and doesn't really know how to relay his experience into like a concrete lesson plan and gets frustrated and angry at Kyuta when he doesn't get it and Kyuta in turn gets angry and frustrated because he doesn't understand and he's not explaining it well. Kyuta is similarly scrappy and aggressive but most importantly also incredibly resourceful and learns through secretly mimicking his master diligently until he's able to effectively spar with him and gains Kumatetsu's respect through this, perhaps seeing a lot of himself in Kyuta. Sparring with Kyuta forces Kumatetsu to become more efficient and polished because Kyuta is really good with predicting his movements but Kumatetsu is still the more powerful one of the two in terms of raw power and Kyuta still needs to learn more about that. And also through Kyuta he is able to understand how to teach others and he gains a lot of students as a result as everyone sees how much Kyuta has grown under him. The current lord of Furikon world even remarks at some point which one is the student and which one the master. The other major theme of this film is dealing with the darkness in your heart. The desire to hurt and lash out at others because of life giving you a bad hand can consume you if you let it and in typical Hosoda style this commonplace human feeling is turned into something fantastical as Kyuta's hatred for the world for how flippantly his family treated him after he lost his mother and the loss itself and the hurt of his dad not being there manifesting itself into a shadow with its own subdued sentience which he leaves behind when he escapes to the beast world but re-encounters later. The darkness of the human heart is something a lot of beasts fear and is why Yozen fights when Kyuta first arrives in Furikon world. They know how destructive it can be but the film also goes to great lengths to tell us that while we all have destructive tendencies within us that doesn't make us destructive by default and that it's something that we can channel constructively and control with some work. Wolf Children was a lot more restrained in terms of Hosoda's love for exaggerated frenetic movements 
in order to match the more contemplative patient tone of the story but Boy and the Beast probably has more kineticism to it than any of Hosoda's original works and not even that far behind the One Piece movie which makes sense seeing as it's a movie about training to be a better fighter and also fighting destructive urges. There's not just energy in terms of the character movements like Kyuta getting chased by Kumatetsu around the dinner table or Kyuta getting chased by the police when he was alone on Tokyo streets or the sometimes slapstick hilarity and spectacle of the fights between Kumatetsu and Iozen or Kyuta getting chased by the Beast World Law Enforcement or Kyuta getting chased by Kumatetsu again after he... Kyuta gets chased a lot in this movie. It's almost like it's a metaphor for him running from something or... You know? <laughs> but I digress. Um, oh yeah, it's not just about the character movements. It's also the ca camera cuts and the movements of the camera that's just filled with so much vibrancy and it gives the film a lot more energy too. There's a few really dynamic and expressive tracking shots like when Kyuta, who was then still Ren, first entered the beast world and the camera swivels through the crowd with speed making the scope and the awe-inspiring fantastical nature of what he's just come across very apparent but also giving the moment a slight sense of anxiety and terror which obviously makes sense. When Kyuta becomes strong enough to take on the neighborhood kids also, who bullied him when he first arrives, they use these quick cuts to change perspective from objective, distant, close, subjective and back, giving the movements a lot of energy and style. This is also used in the fight between Yozen and Kumatetsu when Kyuta is still a newcomer. Close-ups of Kumatetsu's profile as he easily and arrogantly dodges a few punches without having his guard up before getting absolutely hammered right in the nose with this ridiculous embarrassed expression. More distance, more distant shots of them charging at each other interspersed with crowd reactions and the frequent perspective shifts it's a little unusual for fight scenes and the love for close-ups even more so and it gives the fights this fun energy sort of lets you know that while it's technically violence it's not really malicious it's like a contest Osuda still knows how to use his camera which isn't really a camera because it's animated for more thematically rich, contemplative or stoic moments and he uses it to some great effect here in this film like this lateral tracking shot, yes again <laughs> of this girl who becomes friends with Kyuta being harassed by some mean girls as their guy friends egg them on moving from right to left between them showing Kyuta um, show up and getting pushed around by the guys then moving to the girls who suddenly stop and look on terrified then moving back to the guys only to see them all on the floor as Kyuta looks down you don't see the fight you just see their absolutely horrified reactions and then the aftermath that shot both establishes a friendship and fleshes out a newly introduced character 
as in the previous scene she was shown to be helpful, caring and principled but here shown to be lonely and defenseless all in a span of maybe two minutes, maybe less and you get the pretty three-dimensional character in pretty much a snapshot the world building of the setting of the beast world is subtle and intricate and the setting itself is beautifully designed the flat colored character designs up against the incredibly vivid backgrounds is here as always and it's maybe the most detailed his backgrounds has ever gotten in terms of raw beauty i'd say the p pastoral natural wonder of wolf children still has a slight edge on it but in terms of scope and detail hooey although mirai probably has a beat on all counts to be honest and i'm going to get move on to mirai in just a bit but before i do i really have to take a moment to praise the absolutely magnificent soundtrack this film has Masakatsu Takagi, who has composed all of Studio Chizu's music, except for the new movie Bell, I think, with the more delicate fairy tale-like score of Wolf Children also being fantastic, but he absolutely knocked Boy and the Beast's score clear out the park. It's just a pure joy. They better have a damn good reason for not getting him to be in the new movie. If what I heard was true, because he's just so good. Critically, the film was generally seen as narratively messier than its predecessor, which is honestly probably fair enough, but his international reputation was still at an all-time high and grew even more with this film, earning him another Annie Award nomination for Best Independent Animation this time and getting yet another Japanese Academy Award for Best Animation. Another big event happened shortly after the release of Boy and the Beast. Excuse me. Um, where, where as Hosoda welcomed another member to his family and his wife gave birth to a baby girl. However, his three-year-old son did not take the loss of affection and attention he experienced with the new baby in the picture well and threw a horrible tantrum one day. Osoda found his behavior fascinating and wondered how he would adjust to his role as a big brother. He felt that, his, that with his son he'd seen the raw human soul exposed. I'm paraphrasing there, but he said something very similar in an interview. He realized that there were very few films from the realistic perspective of a child at that age and decided that it was something he needed to create himself. He even brought his son into the studio for the animators to be able to get a good look at for the finer details for the form of a child you know things like the thinness of the hair and so on eventually this would lead to the creation of Osoda's last film before Bell the landmark Mirai of the future or simply Mirai Mirai follows a train obsessed four year old named Kun as he struggles to adjust to having a new baby sister the titular Mirai 
At first he's fascinated by her, but then grows annoyed when she won't play with him, which is obviously a rational thing to expect from someone who can't lift their own head up yet. He goes from annoyed to incensed when he notices the bulk of his parents' attention and energy is going to her and starts throwing tantrums regularly in reaction. He pouts and considers running from home until, thanks to the magical, very literal family tree in his yard, he receives fantastical, ambiguously imaginary visits from and goes on fantastical visits to various family members, past, present and future. The film sees Soda firing at all cylinders. It's not just a narrative culmination of all his works that prunes the most obvious flaws, but a technical and artistic achievement at just about every level. It doesn't quite have the raw beauty of wolf children, but it has more believable, flawed, three-dimensional characters, especially with the parents, which is maybe wolf children's one real flaw. And Mirai is honestly probably more consistent visually, even if it doesn't have as many high highs. It balances the fun, sometimes anxious energy of Boy and the Beast and the nuanced contemplation of wolf children even better than Summer Wars did, with that film cutting from one to the other, while here they drift between the two more organically and they often meld together. The look into an extended family and its bonds and history is given a lot more laser-like focus here than in Summer Wars 2, with the film a brilliant look from the outside and this one a deeply empathetic look from within. Sibling dynamics is a thing that is explored to varying degrees, degrees, degrees before, um, right from the, the first Digimon shorty that he directed with Kari and Tri- Wow, my English has escaped me. With Kari and Tai trying to work together to take care of the Digimon. I mean, it even incorporates time travel in a callback to the girls who left through time, like it's all here. The narrative structure plays almost episodically with each magical encounter, um, a lesson learned, Sometimes the same lesson twice, gaining newfound empathy for his mother, father, understanding that everyone in the family has had to go through some major adjustments after life-changing things and it's just his turn to go through it, and showing realistically how sweet but bratty kids usually need a few tries before lessons sink in, because kids are stubborn as hell. It can feel a bit samey at points, to be honest, if you're feeling a little impatient especially, but the payoff, especially in the last 20 minutes of the film or so, is so worth it, and it rewards every bit of attention you've paid tenfold. The journey of the parents is also tender and sweet. The incompetent, stay-at-home, freelance architect dad, who we learned used to be extremely work-obsessed and basically left his wife to deal with Kun alone. And in the film, at first he acts like simply being at home makes him a great father, but gets called out on it a few times. 
you know, the fact that he's not really working at it. And eventually, through a lot of struggle and error, he gets there without even really realizing that he has. The mother, whose views can be a little short sometimes, worries if that makes her a bad mother without seeing how much she's actually improved at it. At the technical level, this film completely blows his other movies at the wa- out the water. Um, I mean, Boy and the Beast especially has its moments, but nothing like those last 20 minutes when Kun is on the train station or falling out of the sky with Mirai, nor anywhere near the consistent imaginativeness of it. There's clever evocative panning and tracking shots that use the lack of a real camera to move the camera in completely impossible, wondrous ways frequently. Something experimented with in Boys, Boy and the Beast for brief moments too, but it's used to its fullest potential here. From the opening sequence, zooming from a bird's eyes view of the town, of the film setting, to the house as the camera tilts to an eye level view while changing the direction it's zooming to the film's climax of Kun and Future Mirai falling through the trusty white abyss with train like chart with train line chart like branches of the family tree all around him as the camera tilts perspective into these lines and transitions into various family flashbacks. The film uses a lot of really creative transitions. My favorite is the aquarium scene. It's honestly so stunning to me. The animation is his most vivid, with even with the large amount of time spent in the very I am an architect and this is my house looking house. The detailing is intense and exquisite and so often so that when it dials it back, it's a bit of a shock to the system and feels like the color of everything's just been drained out, such as when Kun travels to the past to meet his mom. I'm not the only one who thinks this film is an accomplishment either. It showed up on anim- on nomination lists at just about all the big animation festivals and award shows it was eligible for, even garnering the first ever Oscar nomination for a Japanese animated film that has no Studio Ghibli involvement. And it was in one of the strongest years that the animation industry has seen in quite some time, with a positively stacked Oscar nomination list for Best Animated Feature, including the likes of Isle of Dogs, Incredibles 2, and freaking Into the Spider-Verse. The competition was so tight, and no movie was ever going to beat Spider-Verse to it and deserve it. But being the first anime outside of the Ghibli house to be nominated for it isn't just huge for Soda, but huge for Japanese animation in general. So I guess in a way he kinda was the next Miyazaki, sort of. That's... yeah, we've basically caught up to his career so far. I want to go in without knowing anything about Bell when I do eventually watch it, so I haven't really looked too much into it. It does look very interesting though, there seems to be some techie themes to it based on the trailer. Um, I'm really excited for it. I'll almost certainly do a review when it comes out and post it on a 
post it on the podcast platforms and stuff. I really hope you've I've accomplished what I set out to do, giving you a strong idea of the kind of director he is and why I think he's brilliant. Um, I'm probably going to do World of Tomorrow next. Uh, it's the series by Don Hertzfeld. Well, not the series, it's uh, three short films by Don Hertzfeld that centers on... I don't really know. I haven't <laughs> watched it yet. I just really love Don Hertzfeld, so I, I wanted to check it out. So, yeah, that's probably what's going to be happening. Um, I hope you guys have enjoyed this as much as I have. I really loved going through all of his work again. I really appreciated him even more the second time around. And, yeah, that's been Drone and Quartered. Peace.